Hi, I'm Joe Jakevich, and welcome to the Story Lanes podcast, the podcast where every week we do a deep dive into a movie or TV episode. And to go along with this analysis, every week I publish a graph of the story we're covering on the StoryLanes.com website, a graph I produced while doing this analysis. You don't need to look at that graph, the podcast is standalone. But if you're interested in diving a little deeper, check it out at StoryLanes.com. This week is a special introductory episode. I'm going to give you an introduction to screenwriting and some of the ways that screenwriters think about story. This is information that will be useful when you listen to future episodes, especially if you've never read or written a screenplay. In particular, I'll introduce you to some of the language I'll use while I'm talking about screenplays. If you know your way around a screenplay, you can skip this episode. But if you're a beginner or you haven't spent much time reading books on screenplays, you may find this information of use. And in case you're wondering if this will be useful for you, if you understand three-act structure, have read Save the Cat, have been on the hero's journey, and know the works of Robert McKee, by all means, skip to the next episode. Still here? Good, then let's get started. First off, screenplays. A screenplay is the template for a film. It tells what happens and includes the dialogue that the characters speak. But it's not meant to be an end unto itself. Its purpose is to be brought to life in a movie. That said, there's a lot of value in reading a screenplay, especially if you ever want to write one yourself. And lucky for us, a lot of screenplays are available on the web. Just Google your favorite movie's title with screenplay stuck on the end, and chances are better than even that you'll find the screenplay. But note, screenplays go through many revisions, and sometimes even the final revision isn't exactly what appears on the screen. Sometimes the filmmakers will change things the day of shooting, Sometimes they'll make changes in editing. So don't be surprised if you read a screenplay and see something that's not in the final film, or that there's something in the final film that's missing in the screenplay. That's just all part of the process. Of course, screenplays also go through many revisions before making it to the screen. Sometimes there can be dramatic changes, sometimes minor. You will occasionally come across an early draft of a screenplay. They can be fascinating. You get to see an early version of the final film. Sometimes the final film is better, sometimes worse. For example, you can find online an early draft of the Groundhog's Day screenplay. Here you'll find a reason for why Phil Connor is stuck in this loop. Basically, he offended a previous girlfriend who turned out to be a witch. But they left that out of the final film. And here's the thing, I think dropping it made for a better movie. It didn't really matter, and having that explanation somehow minimized things. It turns what seems like an unexplained miracle into just a trick. But sometimes later drafts make things worse. There's an early draft of The Last Action Hero available online. It lacks many of the sillier touches that made it into the final film. Things like the animated cat. I wish I could see that draft put to screen. I think it would have made a much better movie. Sometimes, often, the screenplay changes dramatically in the course of development. There's an early draft of Alien available online. It still has the alien in all the major story beats, but the characters are entirely different, and there's some minor changes in story structure. You can see why people were drawn to make this movie. The life cycle of the alien is just as fascinating and powerful in the original script as it is in the final movie. But you can also see why they rewrote it. The characters and details are a lot better in the film. So read a few screenplays, it's fun and you will get a better understanding of the film. Now, one thing I should warn you about. Sometimes online you will find transcripts of a movie. 
A transcript is generated when someone watches the movie and transcribes exactly what is said. This is not the same thing as a screenplay. A screenplay is something written by the screenwriter before the movie is made. The screenplay is used to make the movie. That is what is most interesting to read. I suppose there could be some value in reading transcripts, but that's not what I do, and I really don't recommend it. And if you do read a screenplay, you'll see that it's in a strange format. I'm not going to go into details of that format here. Suffice to say, it's a rigidly defined format. Pretty much every screenplay that's produced is in that format. And if you want to write a screenplay, learn the format. Nobody will take your screenplay seriously if it's not in the right structure. Nobody will take your screenplay seriously if it's not formatted correctly. But there's plenty of online resources describing that format and plenty of tools available to produce it. So I'm not going to go into detail about it here. But one thing that I will mention is that a screenplay is explicitly broken into scenes. Each scene shows events in one place at one time. A scene starts with a slug line, a line of text that tells where the scene takes place. It usually includes three elements. First is either int or ext for interior or exterior, meaning that the scene is either inside or outside. Next comes the name of the location. And finally the time, usually either day or night, but some screenplays will give you a little bit more detail like dawn or evening or later or something like that. The slug line helps people producing the film keep track of what the scenes are. And remember, a screenplay is a blueprint used by lots of different people to help make the film. Within the slug line is a mix of action descriptions, which describe the setting in more detail and tell things that are seen to happen, and dialogue, the words spoken by the characters. So that's pretty straightforward. A typical screenplay for a feature film will run 100 to 120 pages. There's variations, of course, but that's the standard. And there's a general rule of thumb that one page of screenplay will map to one minute of film. You do need to know this rule of thumb, because a lot of filmmakers talk about it. But you also need to be suspicious of it. It doesn't apply in a lot of cases. Sometimes you'll see an action sequence that says something like, The characters fight. Now clearly, that could take up a lot of screen time, and it's only one sentence in the screenplay. By contrast, a page that is full of dialogue, especially if the dialogue is meant to be spoken quickly, can take only a fraction of a minute on screen. A page of dialogue written by someone like Aaron Sorkin, who is known for his fast-paced dialogue, could easily be no more than half a minute. Sorkin is famous for writing 180-page screenplays and still have them play out in two hours of screen time. Clearly, the one-minute-per-page rule does not apply to an Aaron Sorkin screenplay. But do remember that one page a minute rule of thumb, because if nothing else, a lot of filmmakers do believe in it, and some of them will use it to estimate the time taken for your screenplay. So the screenplay contains the list of scenes, and that is really what you need to know when you are making the film. But when screenwriters are thinking about story, they need bigger blocks to organize their thoughts. That gets us to acts and sequences. The bigger of these blocks are the acts. So what is an act? I really wish there was a better answer for you, but the answer is, it depends. An act is a major chunk of the story of the film. Something big should happen in the act. It should lead to a major turning point. But beyond that, there's a lot of different definitions of act out there, and a lot of people use the term without ever bothering to define it. The term itself comes from theater. It's much easier to understand what it means there. 
An act is what happens between intermissions. You have two intermissions, it's a three-act play. No intermissions, it's a one-act. As it happens, that also works in commercial television. And if you read a TV script, which are also available online, you'll often see explicit act breaks, just like you'll see sometimes in theater scripts. These act breaks are where the ads run. Not always, though. Streaming shows don't have ad breaks, so often their scripts don't have explicit acts marked. And movie scripts rarely specify these act breaks, so we, the reader, are often left guessing at where they are. I'll describe to you what different screenplay models mean when they speak of acts. But for me, my rule of thumb is this. Tell the story of your favorite movie in one paragraph. Don't leave out anything of major significance, but don't bother trying to tell all the details and subplots. And do keep it to that one paragraph. The individual sentences in that paragraph are the acts. Want an example? Here's The Wizard of Oz. The spoilers here if you're worried about spoilers for a movie that was released over 80 years ago. A young farm girl in Kansas, troubled by a mean neighbor who wants to kill her dog, is caught in a tornado. She wakes in a strange land where she goes on a quest to ask a wizard to send her home. He agrees to help, but only if she kills a wicked witch. After a series of adventures, she kills the witch. Although the wizard tries to fly her home in a balloon, she needs the guidance of a good witch to get back. See, that took five sentences. So I would say that The Wizard of Oz has five acts. And if you think of the major chunks of that story, there seems to be roughly five of them. Dorothy in Kansas. Dorothy sent off to find the wizard. Dorothy's time in the Emerald City of Oz. Dorothy going after the witch. Everything at the end when Dorothy comes back and eventually makes it home again. Five sections, five acts. And do note how much I left out. I never mentioned the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion. At a high level, they just weren't needed, even if they do add a huge amount of charm to the story. There's a lesson there. The key points of a story aren't necessarily the things that make us love it. Just like it isn't the skeleton that makes someone beautiful, it's eyes and hair and skin and form. But that skeleton, well, it had better be there. Of course, not everyone uses this method to define acts. In fact, I don't know offhand of anyone else who uses the method. But it works for me. And also, of course, the breakdown of a story into acts is subjective. You might think that The Wizard of Oz has four acts, or six, or something entirely different. I'm going to call it as I see it in a way that I find useful to understand the story. But feel free to disagree and make a good case, and I may even change my mind and agree with you. After acts, the next level of story breakdown is the sequence. A sequence is a collection of scenes that together tell a key part of the story. Not as big a part or as key a part as an act, but still something whole and entire. Let us again use The Wizard of Oz as an example. So look at the second act, from Dorothy's arrival of Oz to her arrival at the Emerald City. I find three sequences here. In the first, Dorothy arrives in Munchkinland, is greeted by the Munchkins, and meets Glinda and the Wicked Witch. This is a full sequence and things of consequence happen but it does stand apart from the rest of the act. Of course, in this case, it's also one continuous scene. That's okay. A sequence can have multiple scenes, but it doesn't have to. For example, the next sequence does have multiple scenes. This is Dorothy's journey to the Emerald City, where she meets her three great friends, the Scarecrow, Tin Woodman, and the Cowardly Lion. Each of those meetings is a separate scene. 
There's also some other scenes mixed in, such as the encounter with the apple trees. But all of these scenes fit together in one sequence. And they can be summed up as Dorothy travels and meets new friends. The third sequence is the Wicked Witch's attempt to keep Dorothy from the Emerald City, most notably in the poppy scene. So when identifying the sequences, we can again apply the paragraph rule. If you were to prepare a synopsis of a movie in one page, each act might be a paragraph, and in each paragraph, each sequence would be a sentence. Accordingly, we might describe Act Two of The Wizard of Oz like this. Dorothy lands in Oz, where she is greeted by the Munchkins, meets Glinda the Good Witch, makes an enemy of the Wicked Witch of the West, and is sent off wearing the magic ruby slippers on the road to Oz to meet the wizard who can send her home. On the way to Oz, she makes three friends, the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodsman, and the Cowardly Lion. But before they reach the city, the Wicked Witch of the West tries to trap them with magical poppies, a trap that they escape with the help of Glinda. See? Three sentences, three sequences. Again, this breakdown is subjective, but again, it works for me. Now below the sequence sits the scene, and here, finally, things are well-defined. The screenplay explicitly marks the scenes. Now you can go even deeper and break a scene into beats. A beat is a significant moment in a scene, often a moment when something changes. I won't often talk about beats in these podcasts, but I will occasionally use the term. Just be aware that when I speak of beats, I mean the significant moments in a scene. But beat is an overused term. It can also mean the major turning points in the story, and I will use it that way as well. And to complicate it further, the term beat is also indicate a small pause in an actor's delivery. The context will generally make it clear what kind of beat we're talking about, but get ready for confusion. One key thing to note is that most screenplays do not specifically identify acts and sequences. They are elements of structure that we impose as we analyze the screenplay. And, of course, they are elements that the screenwriter may have in mind while writing the screenplay. Some screenwriters report using them, some say it's more intuitive for them. When I'm writing a screenplay, it can be either. Sometimes I know where the act breaks are as I'm writing. But sometimes I write a screenplay and only realize afterwards where the acts break. And usually those act breaks are at a major turning point. Again, TV scripts are an exception to this no-act-break rule. They often identify acts, especially for commercial TV where there are explicit ad breaks. And in the case of TV scripts, there is one more element worth noting, the teaser. A teaser is a 3-10 to page opening that teases the audience for what is to come. Some TV scripts have an explicit teaser, and you will see some movies that have a teaser in them. For example, think of the opening sequence of a James Bond movie. It's typically a big action sequence that gets the audience excited. It may be related to the plot of the movie, but it may be entirely standalone, and it always ends with the titles. This opening sequence is a teaser, so James Bond movies have teasers. Not every movie has one, some do, and I will point them out when we find them. Okay, that's my view of how a screenplay is structured. How do some other analysts and gurus talk about structure? Well, there's a lot of different views. There are an astonishing number of books about writing screenplays, and each seems to have its own way of looking at things. Now, in doing these analyses, I'm going to focus on a few key models. These are approaches that you'll often hear screenwriters talking about. 
So when I analyze a script, I'll give my own view of how it's structured, but I'll also try analyzing it using these key models. In a warning here, there are tons of screenwriting books. There are many screenwriting gurus. Some of them will tell you that there is only one way to write a good screenplay, and some will tell you that every great screenplay fits their formula. Often they will go through painful contortions trying to fit a given film into their formula. Those books drive me up the wall. I believe that story is incredibly complex. And given that, you will never find one formula that fits every great story. A given screenplay model can be useful to construct a given screenplay, and it can be useful to understand a given screenplay. But there's almost always other ways of doing things that might work better for some stories, and some films just don't fit into any standard formula. Not unless you bland down the formula and turn it into something so generic that it's of no use whatsoever in analyzing or in creating a screenplay. But I find that needlessly reductive and quite useless. So, let me get off my soapbox and dive into some of these structures. The first is three-act structure. This was largely popularized in a book called Screenplay by Sid Field, first published in 1979. This was one of the first books on screenwriting to gain traction, and the model that it presents came to be adopted by many. As you can guess by the name, three-act structure states that every screenplay is broken into three acts. Roughly, these are the beginning, middle, and end. Or, as Field writes, the setup, confrontation, and resolution. The beginning sets up the world, the protagonist, and the central problem of the movie. In the middle, we get a series of escalating complications and confrontations where the tension rises throughout. And the end resolves the complications, solves the problem of the movie, and sets the protagonist free to live his life, assuming he survives the film, of course. Very roughly, the beginning should take about a quarter of the screen time, the middle half, and the ending another quarter. Obviously, your mileage may vary. Field goes into more detail about the moments of transition in these sections. The first part of Act 1 sets the status quo, the world where the protagonist lives. Then somewhere in Act 1 comes the inciting incident. This is the event that really kicks off the story. In The Wizard of Oz, Miss Gulch appears with the order to take Toto. This leads Dorothy to run away, which in turn starts the action of the film. But note, sometimes it's not entirely clear what exactly is the inciting incident. Sometimes there are multiple competing possible inciting incidents. We will see many examples of this in the films that we cover. But The Wizard of Oz is actually a good example of this. Is the inciting incident really when Miss Gulch takes Toto? Or is it when the tornado sends Dorothy to Oz? Field also talks about key plot points. The first plot point happens at the end of Act 1, and it launches the film into Act 2. This is a key moment that sends the protagonist on the adventure. The hero has accepted the challenge given by the inciting incident and is off and running. In The Wizard of Oz, this is clearly when Dorothy lands in Oz. We're now in Act 2 and the adventure has truly begun. The second plot point happens at the end of Act 2, and it launches the hero into the resolution. All distractions have been removed. The hero has committed to a course of action, and now the hero just has to see things through to the end. We now move into Act 3, where the hero comes face to face with his biggest challenge. In The Wizard of Oz, this is the moment when Dorothy has killed the Wicked Witch of the West and gotten her broomstick. 
She now has the item that the wizard sent her to get, the goal of her quest, and she's ready to resolve the plot by getting the wizard to send her home. There's still one more challenge the wizard tries to refuse her. She has to overcome that resistance in order to win the day. But she does, and she goes home, and everything ends happily ever after. And that's three-act structure according to Sid Field. But a funny thing happened after that. A lot of screenwriters wrote a lot of screenplays using Field's model, and they ran into a problem. There just wasn't enough complications to fill up Act 2. Their Act 2s started slowing down, getting boring. This problem was common enough that it got its own name, an Act 2 problem. To help solve this, at some point someone added another element to three-act structure. That was the midpoint. The midpoint is an event that happens at around the middle of the movie that suddenly makes things more serious, that drastically complicates events. Where before the hero seemed to be on a fun little adventure, now things get real. And often the midpoint can be a major event that changes the course of the entire film. In The Wizard of Oz, this is the moment when the wizard says he will help Dorothy, but only if she brings him the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. Essentially, the wizard has told Dorothy to kill the witch, because we know the witch isn't going to just give away that broomstick. This is a major complication, and it sends the film off in a different direction, literally in this case, as Dorothy heads off to Winkyland to confront the witch. Things have truly gotten real. These days, when someone speaks of three-act structure, they typically mean three acts plus a midpoint. So, that's what I will mean when I talk about three-act structure. And when I talk about three-act structure in the course of these analyses, I'll discuss all of these major points in the film. The inciting incident, the first plot point where we break into Act 2, the midpoint where things get real, the second plot point where we break into Act 3. I will note this, however, I am not a three-act fundamentalist, and there's plenty of them out there. Just for one thing, I don't understand why a three-act film with a midpoint shouldn't be talked about as a four-act film, with the midpoint being the break between Acts 2 and 3. That makes more sense to the way I think of Acts. It seems to me that insisting that those kind of movies are three acts and not four acts is just adhering to three-act structure for the sake of adhering to it. So when I see a movie that adheres to this traditional three-act plus a midpoint structure, I will usually discuss it in terms of four-act structure. That's a bit of a contrarian viewpoint, but it is mine, and this is my podcast. So, I'll warn you when it comes up, but I will be talking that way. But even beyond that, I often believe that movies have more than three acts, that there are some films where there are more than three major parts of the story, major hurdles that the hero has to leap before reaching the end. And clearly, in my mind, there's nothing magic about three acts. The three-act fundamentalists will tell you that there is, beginning, middle, end. Every story has to have those, right? But as I noted, hour-long TV shows typically have four to six acts, sometimes with a teaser on top of that. And a Broadway musical is broken into two acts. All those Shakespeare plays are written in five acts. You can tell a story with a different number of acts. Now, the three-act fundamentalists will often argue that those cases really have three acts. I think sure, but only if the word act itself is meaningless, little more than beginning, middle, end. So again, I'll pay some heed to three-act structure in these analyses, but I'm not going to take it too much to heart. 
because I believe that story is so complex it cannot be squeezed into a single formula. And I think there's lots of ways of structuring a great script. So let me give an aside. There's a lot of screenwriters and gurus out there who say, there's lots of ways to structure a story, and here's the way I do it. They will often go ahead and present some variation of three-act structure. I have the greatest respect for those people. I find that approach a lot different than saying that every great story has to follow the same formula. Sure, there are formulas that can work to produce a great story, but that doesn't mean that they're the only formulas that can work for that. And if someone is willing to acknowledge that, I am all ears. But talking about the people who say that every story has to follow the same formula, let's move on to Blake Snyder's Save the Cat, a book about screenwriting that came out in 2005. Save the Cat has a whole lot of interesting and useful tips on screenwriting. An example is the tip found in its title. Snyder says you want to get the audience on your protagonist's side from the beginning. The best way of doing this is to show the protagonist doing a good deed early in the film. Snyder's example is saving a cat. If the protagonist saves a cat early on, we'll like the protagonist, thus the title of his book. Now, of course, Snyder goes ahead and says that you should do this in every story, and I completely disagree with that. There are stories where the protagonist doesn't have to be likable. In Act One of A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge never saves a cat. He is horrible and hateful, but fascinating. And that's why that story has lived for over 150 years. Now, in addition to those general story tips, Snyder presents what is probably the most detailed screenplay formula that I know of. He has a list of 15 story beats that he says should be in every screenplay. And not only does he present the beats, he tells us the page numbers where each beat should appear. Snyder's beats build on top of three-act structure. He even refers to Sid Field in presenting his beats. Snyder just adds to Field. So there's some key similarities. And with that said, here's Snyder's beats. First, the opening image. The opening image of the film. The first thing that we see. It encapsulates the beginning world of the film, what is going to change by the end. Second, the theme stated. This is a clear statement of the theme or meaning of the film. We'll talk more about theme later. Third, setup. This is roughly the first ten pages. It sets up the world of the film, the status quo that will be changed by the events of the film. Four, catalyst. This is Snyder's term for the inciting incident. Five, the debate. This is a period when the main character decides whether to act on the catalyst, a moment of uncertainty in which the protagonist chooses to act. Because if the protagonist doesn't choose to act, there wouldn't be a movie. Six, break into two. This is the same as Sid Field's first plot point, where the film moves from Act 1 into Act 2. 7. The B Story. This introduces the B Story, the main subplot of the film. 8. Fun and Games. This is a period of 25 pages or so where the protagonist goes on adventures, but the stakes are still fairly low. 9. Midpoint. This is the same as the three-act structure midpoint. 10. The Bad Guys Close In. This is a period of roughly 20 pages when things start getting hard for our hero. 11. All is lost, the moment when it seems like the hero will lose. 12. The dark night of the soul, a period when the hero faces the possibility of losing, has to dig deep inside and find the inner resources to go on. 13. The break into three. This is Snyder's term for Sid Field's second plot point, where we move into Act 3. 
14 finale this is the final confrontation between hero and villain and 15 the final image the final image that should show what has changed it pairs with the opening image now not all great films have all of these beats though snyder claims that they do we will discuss which beats are present and which are missing when we analyze specific films in future episodes but this is snyder's view of the world and note that, as I said, Snyder actually goes so far as to give page numbers in which all these beats should occur. And that just seems ridiculous to me. I have to wonder if Snyder meant it seriously. The third and final screenplay model that we'll look at for every film is the hero's journey. The hero's journey has a much different history than these other models. It's the work of Joseph Campbell, a literature professor and expert on world myth. Campbell found that myths from different cultures tended to have a similar structure with similar story beats. He wrote about this in a number of books, most notably in The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Campbell's views were adopted by George Lucas. The original Star Wars, Episode Four: A New Hope, follows Campbell's beats fairly closely, and Campbell and Lucas became friends, which led to Campbell becoming quite popular in the filmmaking world. But note, Campbell was not trying to create a formula for writing a story. He was describing elements that he found in many great stories. And he was clear that not all elements were present in all stories. He was an academic describing something that he found, not a guru prescribing an approach. That said, Campbell's beats are similar in a lot of ways to those of both three-act structure and Save the Cat. Generally, if a film is a good match for one of those structures, it's a good match for all of them though not all films are a good match for them. And we should note, Campbell's work was published before either of those other books. So if anybody stole from anybody, it was Fields and Snyder stealing from Campbell. One key thing to note about the hero's journey is that it is focused on the hero or protagonist. All of the key points in there are told from the hero's point of view. So the hero's journey works best when looking at stories about an individual protagonist who becomes the hero, like Star Wars, where Luke Skywalker grows to become a great hero. And I suppose that's no surprise. After all, it is called the hero's journey. So now let's look at Campbell's beats. For more information on these, I suggest you Google hero's journey. There's lots of online resources discussing this, some with variations in the list of beats. But this is a general list that I'll be using in these analyses. First, Campbell breaks the hero's journey into three main stages. These correspond to the three acts that we've been discussing. In Campbell's view, they are the departure in which the hero leaves his ordinary world, the initiation in which the hero undergoes a set of trials and emerges as a champion, and the return in which the hero returns to his original world, often finding and facing some major challenges when he gets back. So there's a pretty clear correspondence there to three-act structure. But note that this has a strong geographical component. The hero's journey encapsulates the idea of going someplace where the adventure happens, then coming home again. And this is common in the myths that Campbell analyzed. It also works well for a lot of movies. Think again of The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy leaves home for the magical world of Oz. Then at the end, she returns home again, having learned an important lesson. Dorothy has definitely gone on a traditional hero's journey, departing from home, 
undergoing a set of trials in a strange and fantastical world and coming home with the treasure of the lesson that she has learned. But not all movies have this kind of geographical transition. Sometimes the movement is only metaphorical. Sometimes it isn't even that. The hero's journey doesn't need to apply to every film. But back to the hero's journey. Within those three sections, the hero goes through the following beats. There's the ordinary world in which we meet the hero's status quo. This is similar to Snyder's setup. Then there is the call to adventure when something happens that calls the hero to go on the adventure. This is the hero's journey of the inciting incident or catalyst. But note that this is specifically about the hero and his experience of the events. It's not just that something happens that starts the adventure going, it's that something happens to call the hero on that adventure. Next comes the refusal of the call. In this beat, the hero initially refuses the call of adventure. It won't last, of course, or there wouldn't be a story. But for a moment, he refuses. This maps to Snyder's debate section. But note that a lot of stories don't have this beat, and in a lot of stories, the beat is minimal. Famously, Luke Skywalker refuses the call for about 30 seconds in Star Wars. Blink and you'll miss it. Campbell has a meeting the mentor beat. A hero in myth usually has a mentor that provides guidance and training that he'll need for the adventure. It's Merlin, it's Gandalf, it's Dumbledore, or it's Glinda the Good. Again, not all heroes have mentors, but this is a common beat. Then comes crossing the first threshold. The hero accepts the adventure and enters the new world. This is the move into Act 2. Then come tests, allies, and enemies. The hero undergoes a series of tests and meets allies and enemies. This is where the meat of the story begins. The approach to the inmost cave. The hero gets close to his goal. It seems like he's about to succeed. The ordeal. The big battle in which the hero proves himself. The reward. The hero wins the battle and gets the reward. It can be something physical, a bit of treasure, a magical sword, or it can be something that the hero has learned or some other intangible gain. The road back. The hero starts back home. This is the move into Act 3. But the hero discovers that there is one last challenge that must be met. The road home will not be an easy one. The resurrection. The hero meets and overcomes the final challenge. This is the climax of the story. And finally, the return. The hero is now back with his reward and the challenges are met. And that's the hero's journey. It works fairly well when analyzing a certain set of scripts, not so well with others. And again, as an example of a movie that follows this fairly closely, look to The Wizard of Oz. I'm not going to go through how all of the hero's journey beats map directly to The Wizard of Oz, but take a look and you'll see just how close it gets. So another author that I'll occasionally discuss is Robert McKee. He wrote a book called Story, first published in 1997. And he gives a whole lot of seminars on writing screenplays. I actually like McKee. He's my favorite of the screenwriting gurus. That's largely because he recognizes that there are different models for screenplays. His screenplays can have various numbers of acts. He recognizes that some stories don't match the standard format. He even has a definition of an act. An act is a part of a screenplay that produces a major shift in one of the key values of the film. So I like his approach, and I may mention it sometime, and it certainly influenced my thinking on screenplay structure. 
but ironically, because it's loosely defined, which is something I appreciate, it's not as easy to map McKee's structure of a screenplay, so I will often skip past it. But you will occasionally hear me mention McKee, and you may see him show up in some of the story lane's graphs. Now another term that you'll hear me throw around a lot, and that I've mentioned a couple of times here, that's stakes. The stakes of a film are what happens if the hero loses. Why does this story matter? A good story must have stakes. Because otherwise, why should the character care? And why should the audience care if there's nothing at stake here? But different films can have radically different stakes. In a vast superhero movie, the stakes might be the survival of the universe itself. In a rom-com, the stakes might be whether the protagonist will find love and happiness. The key thing is that stakes are present and they matter in the context of the movie, both to the protagonist and, more importantly, to the audience. And finally, we come to theme. What is the story about? This can be a moral or message at the heart of the story. It might be possible to encapsulate it in a sentence, and that sentence may appear in the movie, sometimes over and over again. For example, look at The Wizard of Oz. The theme there is clearly, there's no place like home. A nice simple message and one that is repeated. It's really impossible to miss. But sometimes the theme is a bit larger and vaguer. And it's not entirely clear exactly what the movie is saying about the theme. Maybe it's just really a subject and not a statement. For example, Aliens is a movie about motherhood, but it doesn't make one clear statement about motherhood. And some movies may not have a clear theme at all. If there's enough action and great characters and plot twists, you can get away without a theme. But it's always worth looking for the theme, and every podcast episode will discuss the theme of the movie that we're examining. So those are the basic things you'll need to know when listening to these podcasts, the terminology I'll use when analyzing these films. I'll also put a glossary on storylanes.com to allow quick access to some of these terms. Now, ready to dive into an actual analysis of a film? Then listen to the next episode, the first true episode of the Storylanes podcast which is about Die Hard, the great 80s action film. See you then, and catch you on StoryLanes.com. This is Joe Jakevich. Talk at you later. Mm -hmm.